You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Let me have your attention for a moment. Put that coffee down. Let's talk about something important. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. You want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Somebody should stand up and strike back. Somebody yeah. should do something to them. The hell exists on this earth? Yes. What can you do? I gotta tell you, I'm ready to do the Dutch. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. You think you're a thief? We're just talking. We are? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. We're speaking about it's an idea. We're not actually talking about it. No. It's a robbery. It's a robbery? No. And what is it we're so afraid of? All you need, a little boost. Tonight is the thing. So be it. What happened? What happened? Uh, we had a slight burglary. Criminals come and they, they take, they steal the phones. They stole the phones, they stole the... Uh. You robbed the office. Oh, sure, I robbed the office. Oh, sure. You did that? You get out of here? How can you talk to me that way? Are you talking to me? When I talk to the police, I get nervous. You know who doesn't? Oh, uh, thieves. What's your name? Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, from the Pulitzer Prize winner, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. This is how we keep score, the beat. Okay, okay, sit down. Mitch and Murray sent me on a mission of mercy from downtown this week to get you pathetic losers in line here at the projection booth. Hey, White, thank you for joining us today, Cookie Puss. You're such a hero. You're so rich. How come you're coming down here wasting your time with a bunch of bumps? Well, my rudeness means I care. Also glad to have Mr. Hyundai Driver. Chris Dashu from the Culture Cast podcast. Oh, what a big man you are. Hey, let me buy you a pack of gum. Let me show you how to chew it. All right. This week we're talking about the 1992 film from director James Foley, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, based on the 1984 Pulitzer and Tony Award winning play of the same name by David Mamet. It tells the tale of a group of shady real estate salesmen in a New York City boiler room seeking to make the big money, get on the board, and keep their jobs. And maybe just maybe, get the first prize or second prize, because um, they surely don't want that third prize. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. The film features an all-star cast of veterans like Jack Lemmon and Alan Arkin, people in the middle of their careers, Al Pacino and Jonathan Price, and relatively new faces such as Kevin Spacey and Alec Baldwin, all of whom go on to make a big impact in the world of those talking pictures you kids like in television. Glengarry Glenn Ross is about the heart of darkness in the American salesman, picking up where Willie Loman left off, featuring firecracker dialogue, and also holds one of the top spots for the most curse words per film ever made. Oh, fuck you! Fuck the lot of you! Fuck you all! So, if you got a problem with language or spoilers, you might just want to fucking turn us off this week. So, Chris, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, and what did you think? Well, first off, thank you guys for having me. The first time I saw Glenn Gary Glenn Ross had to have been, I want to say, my senior year of high school. Uh, so, about seven years ago. Uh, and I watched it twice, back to back. And first time I didn't get it. Second time I kind of, you know, understood it more. And 
it's honestly, you know, in my top five movies of all time. So that's that's kind of what I think of it. The performances are amazing. I mean, it's all about just the drama between the characters. And I think that, uh, you know, with David Mamet being kind of the genius that he is with writing, I think that that obviously comes through with the film. So what about you, Mr. White? I must have seen this one probably mid 90s, not too long after it came out on VHS. I didn't see it at the theater. I remember the teaser trailer for it playing at the movie theater where I was working the uh, the two brass balls kind of going across the screen. It was a nice teaser, uh, that with uh, Alec Baldwin's voiceover, if memory serves. And uh, yeah, uh, I had no idea really what the film was going to be like. And for some reason, I just wasn't that interested until after I heard that it was fantastic, got it on VHS, and yeah absolutely loved it and it's one of the most quotable films ever and it definitely is something um that far too often some of the lines make it into my own personal dialogue especially when i'm at work as for me i think i saw this when i started taking an acting class in high school uh that would have been in the uh, mid 90s on vhs my friend dean who i talked about before on the show and i talk a little bit more about him on the uh, drunken uh commentary that I did for my film Tainted uh, that we did for um, April Fool's Day. Yeah, not this past year, but the year before. We took uh, acting classes at community college in our junior and senior year of high school. And there were obviously, since it's community college, uh, folks who were in their you know 20s and older. And there was a guy in there, and we eventually got cast in a play with him. And this was one of those that he loved from an acting perspective. And I remember going over to his house and watching this. And I think he was also the same guy who introduced me to Tom Waits and finally helped me to figure out exactly who sings Everybody Knows in Pump Up the Volume. That would be Leonard Cohen. I had no idea who that was at the time, although I love the song. So it really had this... um, this major like impact on me in terms of like you were saying it's such a quotable film the characters are just the way they interact and was just completely blown away by it because although it's a play and you get that sense when you watch it i think foley's direction helps to elevate it beyond just you know setting up a camera and making it just a solid proscenium shot and letting these guys tear into each other he really does a lot of nice work in here and uh, a couple of years after that that same community college, um, and I believe it was the guy who introduced me to the film, was actually cast in, in the play as Williamson, the character that uh, Kevin Spacey plays. And it was it was great fun to see a uh, community theater production of Glengarry Glen Ross that was quite good. Yeah, this is definitely one of those plays on film where you get a sense at times that you're watching a play. I mean, there's so many different ways to approach the adaptation of a, of a play for a film. I mean, around this time, A Few Good Men was coming out, and they really kind of pulled that thing out of the theater and really tried to take it you know, on different locations and really kind of took the, the stage out of the play. And then there are other f- films that I've complained about before, things like Six Degrees of Separation or, my God, uh, House of Yes, the Mark Waters film from 97, where it was just like everybody has that pitch to their voice where they are projecting to the back row and they're over-enunciating everything. It's kind of like when the silent actors would go into you know sound productions and they were still using their silent acting. This is like, you know, 
using the stage acting for film, really the two things are not compatible. So when it comes to something like a Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, it's kind of a mix of both for me because we are very bound to just a, a few sets. But the way that the camera moves and everything, it kind of takes it out of that one stage kind of thing and then the rhythm of the dialogue you don't necessarily get that projection to the back row but you do kind of get a little bit of a stagey feel with the dialogue but the rhythm is such and the performances my god are just such that you definitely know that you're watching a movie and not a play at the end of the day. And also like the fluid camera movement, especially if you look at the the Alec Baldwin scene in the beginning and then uh, later the, the scene that the Jack Lemon has with Kevin Spacey, where they're moving through the space and the, the camera's kind of constantly going. There's no sort of lock off and it's just two guys talking back and forth. Or and then into close-ups, you know, to emphasize certain shots. I mean, he's really moving with them and allowing them to move within the space of that of that office, or even the uh, the, the Chinese restaurant, which is also the the other big set. I love the scenes in the phones where the shots are really divided up very nicely and with the reds and the blues, and that to me feels a little stagey at times. Like that would be kind of like you know downstage kind of thing that we're getting as as like kind of a closer thing to the audience kind of bit but just the way that that is lit and everything i think it just looks absolutely gorgeous and there's just i love also the sound design that we get in this film like it starts off with this rain sound effect that's going on and so much of the film takes place in the rain and just uh, at least like the first half of it does and i love that that's almost a character uh in the first half of the film and it's such a New York film. I mean, the, the, the thing that I realized on the, on the recent viewing is that it is a bookends with a shot of the subway. So, and there's the use of sort of that subway, I guess, sort of Doppler effect for the credits and stuff like that. So it, he really wants to give you this sense of place. Um, he really wants to give you this sense of almost like you were saying, kind of that rain, you know, that kind of, I, I don't know, maybe film noir or something, considering this is, the, the follow-up to what we talked about last week with After Dark, My Sweet, and things like that. So it's it's interesting, sort of, the, uh, the the use of that stuff. And even the office, well, it's a decent office. It's not the best office. It's it's a little kind of run down. And then the Chinese restaurant, like, the neon's broken. You know, it's not, that's not nice either. So you, you get the feeling that these guys are, like, working-class salesmen. These are not the high-end guys, and these are not, you know, the bottom of the barrel either. They're just kind of like, you know, everyday kind of schlubby guys. Well, their office is is kind of like an, uh, a satellite to the main, the main office. That's kind of what I always took away from the film is these are kind of like not even the B team or the C team, but like the D team. Uh, and, you know, Pacino's character kind of is there, but obviously he doesn't really belong with them, if that makes sense. I've always, that's kind of the feeling I always got from Pacino's character in the film, and kind of the way they position his character is that his character doesn't belong with the rest of them. And he's just kind of there because Jack Lemmon says, oh, we had these kind of runs of bad luck. And Pacino's character is like right on the cusp of getting out of there again. That's kind of the, the, what I always took away from kind of, you know, with the way that they're all portrayed is like Pacino doesn't belong with them. Well, there's a lot of implication in that way that you get that, especially the um, the Lemon character and Alan Arkin characters are maybe guys who are at the end of their careers, 
Right. And then you get Pacino, who's like the rising star. And then you get the feeling that the Dave Moss character played by Ed Harris is kind of the guy in the middle. He hasn't quite broken, but he hasn't quite fallen back either. He's just kind of stuck there. He's like, you get the feeling that he's just kind of like frustrated. That's the thing that's so great about the way the characters are written and the dialogue. There's so much implication in the dialogue that Mamet gives us. Um, I don't think that's it, it's a hundred percent on the nose. Like I remember the, the first time I saw it, I didn't quite get some of the dialogue in the front because I wasn't paying that much attention. I figured, oh, this is just you know whatever. Like him on the phone talking to someone. Okay, I'll be there. All right, I'll be there. You know all this with with Jack Lemon. I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can, hon, and all this. And we like on subsequent viewings, or if you're really paying attention to what he's saying throughout, you get the feeling that there's this motivator with the Levine character that he has like a sick daughter, and this is why he has to do what he has to do. He's got to make the money because he's trying to help his sick daughter. So this becomes something that kind of pushes up from underneath, but it's not hammering you. Like, I think like a lesser writer would be like, I've got a sick daughter. I've got a sick daughter. I've got a sick daughter. And just like hammer the desk all day with it. I sometimes wonder though, if Ricky Roma, the Al Pacino character, if he would be such, he's definitely a big fish in a small pond when it comes to this office. But I wonder if he would be such a big fish if he got moved up to that C team, B team, A team, or if he would just completely tank. Is he the kind of guy who's comfortable being in a position where he's always going to be number one on the board kind of thing until he becomes as old as, as like a Shelley character? Or is he, does he actually have the stuff? Is he more of like the, um, I'm kind of reminded of Wolf of Wall Street when DiCaprio's character comes into that like shitty office that's run out of like an office park kind of thing or a uh, strip mall. And he really is, you know, a big fish. At least he has the potential to be a big fish in this place. And he kind of turns things around and is really amazing and everything. And obviously moves up in the world from there. I kind of wonder if Roma is so much swagger, if that's what he would be like if he got moved into a bigger opportunity. Well, I mean, the way he handles James Link, Jonathan Price's character in the film, I feel like, you know, I think if he, if he was moved up, which is kind of the, the sense at the, you know, end of the film, obviously, and I don't know how far we're, you know, kind of just talking in, in generality, but the way the film ends he kind of shirks the premier properties office completely. And he's like, I'm just going to go out on my own. And when you watch him interact with Jonathan price, it's almost like, um, like an animal toying with its prey back and forth. And he's just waiting and waiting for his opportunity to strike. Cause, cause when he broaches the subject of the properties trying to sell, he's like, maybe you will be interested. Maybe you won't. I don't even know. You know, he, he's right. not, he's not forceful with it. Like everybody else is. I mean, Jack Lemmon's character, when he's when he's approaching people, it's overbearing and, I mean, and, and for lack of a better word, it's pathetic. His character just comes off as pathetic. And obviously that's the point. He's desperate. So in his desperation, he has become pathetic. But, I mean, from everything we've seen in the film, I and, you know, the way it ends, I think Pacino's character kind of goes on and becomes a Mitch or Murray of his own office. The thing that I really like about if, if you want to compare the sales scenes, like each of them have either a call that we see or a visit that they make with someone, 
And as you were talking about the, the, the Mr. Spano thing with uh, Sheldon Levine. I don't just call me Shelley. I have never been afraid of familiarity. <laughs> I'm walking out the door. I've got to pick up my wife at the... Let's take my car. Huh? We'll take her up together. Spoke to a little woman on the phone. Can't wait to meet her. No, we've got to, We're going over to our relatives. Oh, she and... didn't say anything about uh, I'm sure that. she forgot. I'm on a plane to Florida. Well, I'm oh. so sorry if we put you out. No, you she, didn't put uh... me out. No, I'm just trying to think, Larry. <laughs> you know, that's the only parcel that I've got. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the computer, I'm going to pull another one, and we're going to speak to your relatives, no, too. No, no, Now, come no, on, no, you're a busy no. man, Larry, and so no, am listen, I. My listen. God, I'm in the act of giving a gift away. Look, <laughs> I don't want to buy land, I don't want to invest in land, I have yeah. nothing. Hmm. Yeah, I, she took the call without my knowledge. Uh -huh. I have no business yeah, that I wish to transact. Okay, I don't want to tell you how to handle no. your wife. Well, my <laughs> wife filled in a form, and we have been plagued for the last year That's by... That's the situation that I'm trying to alleviate, no. Larry. No, I... do you understand? It's about this when like the first time I watched the scene with Jonathan Price in the restaurant that Pacino has, if you listen to the dialogue, he's really not saying a whole lot. He's talking about these philosophical statements right, and, right. and some of them are complete non sequiturs where he talks about like, you know, all train compartments smell vaguely of shit. And then he goes into this and he talks about this woman and he talks about what are the great meals you've had. And he talks about all of these various things, which are kind of loosely connected. But the only way they're really kind of connected is they're connected in sort of this um, trying to get you to think about things in a particular way or, or, or get you to um, understand, you know, e even the concept of what purchasing something is. You know, they say you don't buy it. You rent it. Uh huh? thing you really uh, uh what do you keep i mean you don't keep anything really <laughs> no security things things you know mm -hmm. it's just you try to stave off insecurity you can't do it no no that's what i'm telling you stocks bonds Objects of art, real estate, what are they? An opportunity. To what? To make money? Perhaps. To lose money? Perhaps. To indulge and to learn about ourselves? Perhaps. So fucking what? What is it? They're an opportunity. That's all they are. They're an event. Like, it's a self-improvement plan. You buying this real estate and what you can learn about yourself by spending out this kind of money so like his sales technique is much more about like trying to tap into like personal philosophy and and in a way when you think about it when the play was produced in 1984 that would have been such a thing like like that's that kind of you know wall street gordon gecko yuppie go-getter kind of attitude kind of thing is yeah it's about the money but it's about like this larger philosophical concept of what the money represents and the things represent ricky roma is the master of the soft sell that's all oh. that's all i was gonna say oh no <laughs> doubt no doubt but it's it's so well done like it's so well done you you can't really find a fault in here with with any of the um with any of the performances and it's interesting to see sort of like how each of them kind of represent different things in, in a particular way. Okay, Roma, like like I wrote down, I, I see him as like the shark. He's moving forward. He's just tearing through things. You know, the Levine character is the sad sack. He's seen better days. I almost feel the same thing for the Aronow character played by Alan Arkin. But I see him as more of a nice guy. You know, he's just this sort of simple guy. 
I get the feeling that maybe he goes home and he's got a wife, you know, and maybe his kids are like now in college or something because he's a little older. And he's just a nice guy. He's just a simple guy, like simple things. He's not flashy or extravagant. Somehow he got into sales. And then you get the feeling that someone like Moss wants to be Roma, but he can't. He's just not quite there. He's a little too gruff. He's a little too blue collar. And especially when you listen to the way Ed Harris brings across the character, to me, he sounds like he sounds like the guys I grew up in in my neighborhood. Like these guys would have been working in the tool and die shop. You know what I mean? All this garbage, sell 10,000, you win a Cadillac, you lose, we're going to fire your ass? It's, no, it's medieval. Yes. It's wrong. Yes. Yes, it is. And you know who's responsible. Who? You know who it is. Mitch and Murray, because it don't have to be this way. Oh. Uh, look at Jerry Graff. He's clean. He's doing business for himself. He's got this, you know, that list with the nurses. See? You see? That's thinking. Why take 10%? A 10% sales commission? Why are we giving the rest away? What are we giving 90% for? For nothing. For some jerk sitting in the office, tell us, get out there and close. Go win a Cadillac. Graff, he goes out there and buys. He pays top dollar for the, you see? Yes. For the leads. That's thinking. I love watching people do their job when they know how to do their job. And I'm talking about anything. Like if I go to get my oil change and the guy who's doing my oil change just knows his job, just knows how to do it. And just, it's almost like a, you know, performance art kind of thing. Seeing these guys who really know how to do their job, do their thing, you know, and I've worked with salespeople before. And I got to say that most of them just kind of always leave me like I need to take a shower, but the really good ones are the ones that, might get you dirty, but you don't even realize that you need to have a shower afterwards. And watching those guys operate and do the same kind of things, get into people's heads, find what they want, and then be able to work towards that, it's just amazing. And that's one of the things that I really like about this film is seeing all these different styles. And especially, I mean, the Roma thing is just, it's a work of art, you know, seeing him get in here and spin all this stuff exactly the way that it needs to be spun. Just absolutely gorgeous. And then even when he and Lemon are are later on kind of uh, ad-libbing there, and so much of this movie is about performances, and that's one of the other things I like about it. I mean, it's great that you watch this for an acting class because you've got these great actors really acting up a storm, but all of the actors are these characters who again have to put on an act. So it's like you're doing this kind of double acting kind of thing, seeing Jack Lemon as Shelley Levine as, and then doing his whole like, you know, Dan, it's Shel Levine. Hey, yeah, we spoke last May. I called you. I was in town from my estate in Rio Rancho and Arizona. Yeah, oh, I wish we could have gotten together at that time. Danny, that piece of property I had for you has increased in value. Grace, Grace, what was that figure? $76,000. Oh, Danny, I wish you could have been in on it with me. Look, I'm here overnight. I have to go home tomorrow. And I thought after the interest you showed on the last trip that... Holy Grace. Danny, I know that you're serious. And because of that, I am going to shove my appointments around and make sure... Well, gee, I wish to... Uh-huh. All right, Danny. All that kind of stuff that he's doing, him being that foil to Ricky Roma later on, you know, just all of these different things. And even the, the Alec Baldwin part, which I know that we'll talk about it a little bit, little bit here, 
him there like preparing for the scene and this whole like let's talk about something important are they all here all but one well i'm going anyway let's talk about something important put that coffee down you know it's like is the audience in their seats okay well i'm going anyway it it is just such an actor's movie you mentioned the the thing with alan arkin's character and i actually i don't know if you guys ever felt this watching it and this is something i've kind of picked on the more times i watched it it's not that he's like mentally handicapped but he's slow as a character because i mean you know when he's talking with ed harris it's kind of like he's not picking up on things really fast and maybe that is just him being a simple man but he also is just kind of a yes man he wants to kind of impress and latch on to whoever he's talking to at the moment. He doesn't actually, except for off screen when he doesn't go through with, uh, you know, what, what Ed Harris is planning. He's just kind of like, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh no. Yes. Yeah. He's just saying yes. And agreeing with everything. The character he's interacting with, regardless of who it is, is saying. When we were selling Glen Ross farms, didn't we sell a bunch of that? Yeah. They came in, you know, they fucked it up. They did. They killed the goose. They did. And now stuck with this. Stuck with this fucking shit. This shit. It's too. It is. You get a bad month. All of. Run is. They put you on his board. I. Some contest I, board. I. It's not right. It's not right to the customers. I know. It's wait. Hey. What did I learn as a kid on Western? You don't sell a guy one car. You sell him five cars over fifteen years. That's right. You goddamn right. It's right. Except for at the end when he's, um, you know, you finally kind of see his character perk up a little bit and he's yelling at the cop who's been interrogating him. Come in here. I work here. I didn't come in here to be mistreated. Go to lunch, will you? That's why the, I, I, I came in to work today. Yeah, that's why. come in. I'll let you know. That's why I came in here. Just I go thought, to lunch. I don't want to go to lunch. Go to lunch, George. Where does he get off? Talk that way to a working man. Look, will you take it outside? We have people trying to do business. That's what I came in here for. That's what I'm trying to do. I meet, I meet Gestapo tactics. Excuse me. I meet Gestapo tactics. I meet Gestapo tactics. That's not right. No man has the right. No man has the right to call an attorney. That means your guilt. That means, that means you're under such car. He says cooperator. We'll take you downtown. That's not as long as I've. You get out of here. But he's just kind of slow and not, not all there is kind of, is kind of what I've felt like the, the couple last couple of times I've seen the film. Yeah, I get that as well. Like I said, I get the fact that he's older, beaten down a little bit, but I don't think he's like beaten down to the to the degree of I don't think he's beaten down to the degree of being pathetic, which is what we get with the Levine character. The the, the one thing and and I already said in the beginning we're going to get into spoilers on this is if you look at who wins in the end of the film, okay? Because what happens is the the office gets robbed. And the Levine character, played by Jack Lemmon, says something that cues Williamson, played by Spacey, that he knows something. And he figures out that it's actually him that had something to do with the Glengarry Leeds disappearing. And then we find out that Dave Moss couldn't get George Arenal, Alan Arkin's character, to do it. And he got Levine to do it because he's more desperate. And so, therefore, you would say, okay, those two guys are going down. They're going to jail, you know, as Spacey's character says. So that leaves you two people who win in the end, first and second prize. So, Roma the Shark, and then, as you were saying, the Yes Man. 
He said, we're all going to have to talk to the guy. To the cop. Great. We have to talk to the cop. Another waste of time. A waste of time? Why? Why? Because they're not going to find the guy. The cops? Yes, the cops. No. The cops aren't going to find the guy? Nope. Why do you think so? Why? Because they're stupid. Where were you last night? Where were you? Where was I? Yeah. I was at home. Where were you? At home. See? Were you the guy who broke in? Was I? Yes. No. And don't sweat it, George. You know why? No. You have nothing to hide. When I talk to the police, I get nervous. Yes. You know who doesn't? No. Who? Thieves. So even the winners in the end is a cynical statement in a particular way, or the simple man. Those are the winners in the universe that Mammoth has created for us. When we talked about this, we actually talked about this on the Culture Cast a long time ago, and it wasn't the, the the conversation kind of wasn't what I was hoping it would be. We kind of thought about the idea that when Alec Baldwin's character comes in, he tells him, you know, first and second place, you you keep your job and you get you know a car, and second place gets steak knives, and then you know third place you're fired. So they're only keeping two people, but they refuse to give them the good leads, and they know that those leads aren't great. I mean, even though Alec Baldwin's character says, you know, I could close these leads, I feel like at least the kind of the the kind of the dark the kind of the the dark comedy aspect of the film is that Alec Baldwin's character and the Mitch and Murray characters who we never see on screen, they know that those guys are going to get fired. They are doing they mean they're not giving them the good leads on purpose so that, you know, the ones that really want it will do anything to close it. But it's for a purpose of just getting those guys to get fired. They don't actually care. That to me always kind of struck me as as funny as, you know, he's like, oh, the good leads, you can't have them. Here are the bad leads. You need to make the money off the bad leads. But the only way to make money is by having the good leads. At least that's what kind of we're led to believe in some of the scenes. Some of the kind of the way those those leads are. Some of them are like 80-year-old people or, you know, people that are just completely nuts. To me, that just comes down to the idea of, you know, really inhumane treatment of people. They're treating their sales staff inhumanely. They're basically saying it's battle royal, you know, and the whole concept of what that means. You know, it's like everyone get in the ring and beat the shit out of each other and the last man standing and the other guy who's next to him. You guys, you guys are fine. Everyone else will just, you know, throw your corpses in the alley when you're done. It's just it. it's just a a more mental version of that. It's just as bloody. It's just as emotionally hard as like allowing people to physically beat the hell out of each other. And it just sort of shows, I think in a way, Mamet kind of looking at the inhumanity of this situation. And it's my understanding that he based some of this stuff on his own experience or the experience of people that he knew who were in sales. If you're a salesman in this movie, you've got so many different opponents if we're going to keep on this battle royale kind of thing because you've got the other salesmen you've got the leads out there you've got the guys who you're talking to and trying to sell and then you've got upper management coming in and giving you all this horseshit at the beginning of the movie that everybody's going to get fired unless you know you are number one and number two salesmen and you know you've got kevin spacey as the office manager who just is to these guys, just such an impediment. And it's like they are, he's the teacher almost to these guys, where it's just like you have to follow the rules. There are certain things, and they just are constantly bucking up against everything. They just want 
to satisfy what needs to be satisfied. They just want to sell. That's their one purpose in the world. But they have to sell these guys, and they also have to sell better than the guy sitting next to them. So it is really this kind of very cutthroat world that they're in where everybody is against them. Do you actually think at at the end of the film that the third place guy ended up getting fired? Or do you think that it was all just, I mean, like you said, Mike, it is bullshit that he's giving them at the beginning. Do you actually think that they fired him? Or do you think it was just a a motivational tool? I mean, and, and that would kind of perpetuate what you know, we've been saying is kind of inhumane. Do you think that they actually got fired or do you think they're just like, we were just trying to motivate you and see how well you would fare under pressure? Well, I guess, I guess that's one of those questions for the ages because really there are only the two guys left at the end of the film. Right. We aren't, there are no other people in those third, fourth place guys. They are fired or worse than that. So yeah, it's going to be, what if that robbery hadn't taken place? Would two of the guys, maybe Shelley, maybe Moss, or maybe Aaron Way, or Aaron Al, who knows who would have been hitting the bricks? I know from my years of working in commercial radio that commercial radio sales staffs change over about um, 25% per quarter. Oh, yeah. The attrition rate is yeah. super high for this kind so, of work. So if you don't meet if you don't meet quotas, if you don't meet goals, they get rid of you. They don't play. They'll they'll get someone else. So it's it's just a constant churn. I mean, I remember working at one station for about two and a half years, and like every time I walked into the sales department, there was someone new at the same desk. Good luck. Get in the trenches and fight it out. And that's just that's just the nature of how they how they do sales. That's just the nature of, of what it's about. It's just about quotas. It's just about numbers. It's not personal business. If you're a really good sales guy, in my opinion, and feel free to write hate mail, just care of me, you're almost like a different breed of person. I mean, real salespeople to me are different than everybody else. And I don't know if it's something that they're born to or if it's something that they get trained for, but I mean, they're just a, they're a little different than everybody else that I know. I mean, like there was one guy that I worked with who was an amazing salesman and he was bald, but he wore the most horrendous piece every single day that he was in the office. And we would ask him about it. It's like, Lee, Why do you wear the piece? I mean, it looks bad. Everybody says it looks bad. You know it looks bad. And he said, listen, if I don't wear the piece, when I go out on these sales calls, I don't make as much money as when I do wear the piece. So he would do anything, even just the self-humiliation, every single day going out there just to get those signatures, just to make those sales. And it just always floored me that, these guys will do anything that it takes. And this whole idea of, of Glengarry Glen Ross with lying, cheating, and literal stealing in this case, it just is par for the course so much with the salespeople that I've had experiences with. And of the salespeople I've met and had dealings with, it always seems like whenever I interact with them, I'm always on the cusp with them of them trying to sell me something. Mm-hmm. which is kind of what Ricky Roma's character is all about. It always seems like he's right on the cusp of trying to pitch you something. Because, I mean, he's like, I don't know, were you interested? Maybe not. And I think that that, you know, that aspect of these guys, some of them are better, some of them aren't. And they're all kind of just in the same pit together fighting. You know, 
a lot of these guys would have would be successful doing other things and like you know they they don't have to be salesmen and some of them have kind of run out the gas in the tank like you know jack lemon's character and i that's that's what i love about the movie is you essentially get to see you know salesman evolution more or less kind of just in the spectrum you get to see you know all the kind of evolution points of what it is to be you know a good salesman so do we want to talk about some of the differences between the play and the film i've never seen the play so feel free if you've seen the play yeah, I've seen the play, and I've also read the play. I had a copy of it at one point. The major differences between the play and the film, and I know this is going to be a shocker for those who have only seen the film, is that uh, there, there's two, and I'm going to talk about one smaller difference, and then we'll talk about the bigger one, is that the whole scene with um, Jack Lemon's character going to visit the family, and he meets Mr. Spano, and he's trying to do the hard sell to him, and he gets pushed out the door, that's not in the play. And the other one that isn't in the play is the Alec Baldwin speech. It doesn't exist in the play. The uh, play basically takes place on two sets. It takes place at the Chinese restaurant, and it takes place in the office. Everything else that's sort of outside of that doesn't happen. So what you get in the beginning is everyone meeting at the Chinese restaurant, and you have that first scene that you get, and they're like, you got to come to the sales meeting. Well, will Roma be there? And it's like, don't worry about Roma. You need to be there. So there's this whole thing about getting them to the sales meeting, and then it goes to black, and then they're in the office, and they've just had the sales meeting. The fuck is he going to get off? Mickey Mouse sales conference. He didn't mean it. I'm sure he didn't mean it about trimming down the sales force. Where is Rome? Huh? Where the hell is Mr. Ricky Rome? All the while we got to sit here and eat this nonsense? And now they've been told what the deal is. So that whole thing with Baldwin and the brass balls and all of that stuff that was written by Mamet for this film. When I saw an adaptation of the play and I think I've seen two different versions of it. I'm not sure if Mamet put it in, in the revival, he added the, the Baldwin scene. You know what it takes to sell real estate? It takes brass balls to sell real estate. Or if, directors of the play just do it anyway put that scene in because i think people have gotten so used to that stuff and it's some of the most quotable aspects of glengarry at times that if it's not there people are like something missing well it kind of makes sense that the first part would be in the chinese restaurant because you have so many of those scenes that are just kind of yeah you've got uh the pacino character ricky roma selling to the James Ling character. You've got the opening with the discussion and everything that you're talking about. And then I can even see like the conversation that Moss and, and the Ellen Arkin character are having being, it, it takes place at a car in the film, but I can see that even taking place in the Chinese restaurant as well, because it would feel like, you know, if everything is leading up to the, the, the day after that takes place in the real estate, obviously, if you're doing a play, it would make sense to set everything in one location rather than bopping back and forth. And that's kind of what they do by bringing in Baldwin in the office and everything, and then allowing us to cross-cut with Ricky Roma and with Moss and, and Arkin out in the car and everything. So, And then also what you were talking about with Shelley being able to go out on these calls and that kind of stuff. So it, it, I guess I can really see where that would make sense from a logistics point of view, but I'm glad with film that we're able to 
kind of break that and break these things into smaller pieces and move them around if they need to be. And it's, it's surprising for me. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that they didn't have the, the Alec Baldwin character in the play. And, you know, of the people that I know that have seen the film, that's always the, the scene. And that's the scene for a lot of people from this film. That's the scene of the film that everybody knows about and ABC always be closing. To me, that's surprising, but it does, like you guys said, it makes sense because in a play, you don't have to show everything and due to time constraints or budget constraints with putting on a play, you can't show everything. And, you know, maybe the film would have worked without a scene like that. Would people have been in, insanely confused and probably wanting more of the interaction with the characters? Yeah. But, you know, I think that I think that that's the scene in the film is is, you know, I don't know if it's my favorite scene in the film, but I know that for a, a large majority of the people who like the film, that that's their favorite scene. I just kind of find it interesting that it's the one big change in this play that won a Pulitzer and won a Tony, and it's probably the most quoted section of the film. And even, and I'll I'll talk about after the interviews, how it's moved into pop culture and it's been used in other places and specifically in one place that you really wouldn't expect. And I'll, I'll play you an example of that um, after we do the interviews. But the other thing with this film, and, and, and this is where it gets some of its neg- negative connotation is, I know that there's people who think that the language is excessive, that they think, you know, God, you know, they swear so much. And I think for a time, it was listed, I think, in the top 10, if not at one time, maybe the number one film with the most swear words. I think it has over 250 different derivatives of shit and fuck in the film. And the movie's only like an hour and 40 minutes, hour and a half. Like, if you do the breakdown, that's probably like, you know, two a minute, <laughs> you know? So, so the language issue has been something for some people. And I would love, Mike... Uh, talking about when we did clean flicks on the show, I would love to see a clean flicks edit of this thing. <laughs> yeah, this has to be up there with like Harlem Nights. That's the one movie I remember from around this time that was just wall to wall f bombs all over the place. But it's it's funny because this came out the same year as Reservoir Dogs, and they both have some very similar rhythms when it comes to the dialogue and definitely a lot of swearing. I mean, there is. An ex- excessive amount of curse words in Reservoir Dogs, but again, it kind of flows and it really has this kind of rhythm to it. And it's kind of ironic too that we're just talking about how the movie begins or the play begins in a restaurant, and that's where we've got the beginning of Reservoir Dogs happening. So I guess this would have been a really good double feature, especially if you're a fan of cursing. The, the other thing that I think really works and why it works with the language is that the language helps to show sort of this, um, for lack of a better term, sort of locker room mentality of the men. These are, like I said, these are the working class guys. They're going to make ethnic jokes. They're going to swear. They're a bunch of white dudes, and that's just how they talk in that time period. So if you wrote it today, would it be a little different? Probably. You might have a, a little bit more of a multi-ethnic cast than a... You know, basically a bunch of white guys, you know, who one of which may be a Jew, but it's, you know, it, it's basically a white man's film. You know, you guys were talking about the language and the F-bombs and them using them 138 times on, on record. What always kind of s- struck me and really stuck out for me with the use of language is when they are kind of dropping the um, the racial slurs and the, uh, you know, the 
the slurs towards, you know, homosexuals. That stuff really stuck out for me, and not like in a bad way, because like, like you said, it is kind of what it would be equated to locker room talk between a bunch of athletes. You know, I'm sure they say even worse stuff than that. But it always kind of stuck out to me as as it really does show that Mamet has a good control over showing what it's really like and not just what someone thinks it's like. This is something he's probably seen or someone has recounted to him, but it's not like him just watching a documentary about it and crafting characters off of a documentary. These people probably existed in some form or another in reality. Yeah, he really does seem to capture... What I know of salespeople, I mean, this really does seem to capture the excessive use of profanity that is inside of that subculture. To me, I don't really have a problem with it because, one, it feels very true to the characters and to the life that they're leading. And, two, there is that rhythm to it. There is that poetry to it. I mean, this really does feel – it's no coincidence that there's a jazz score to this film because this does feel like jazz riffing to me. And just the way that he builds with the language and everything just works when it comes to – the scene with Ricky Roma and the way that he is um, abusing the Kevin Spacey character and all this, I mean, it's just, it's, it's music to me. It's poetry to hear the way that he is just tearing this guy down. And I don't know if you guys agree with that or anything. I mean, I could be completely talking out of my ass when it comes to this, but that's what it feels like to me is this more poetic use of, uh, of, of, bad language you know but but it just feels so right in these characters mouths you stupid fucking cunt you williamson i'm talking to you shit you just cost me six thousand dollars six thousand dollars and one cadillac that's right what are you gonna do about it what are you gonna do about it asshole you fucking shit Where did you learn your trade, you stupid fucking cunt, you idiot? Whoever told you that you could work with men? Could I, uh... Oh, I'm gonna have your job, shithead. I'm going downtown, I'm gonna talk to Mitch and Murray. I'm going to Lemkin. I don't care whose nephew you are, who you know, whose dick you're sucking on, you're going out. I swear to you, you're going... Let's get this done. Anyone in this office lives on his wits. I'm going to be with you in a second. What you're hired for is to help us. Does that seem clear to you? To help us, not to fuck us up. To help men who are going out there to try to earn a living, you fairy. You company man. I'll tell you something else. I hope you rip the joint off. I can tell our friend here a little something might help him to catch you. You want to learn the first rule? You'd know if you ever spent a day in your life. You never open your mouth till you know what the shot is. You fucking child. It it does feel like music. It doesn't feel excessive. Like, I think you could have a film that would have half as much that somebody would do, and it would feel excessive there. But here it seems to work. And this is another thing that I think also kind of builds on this. Like I said, I mean, in a lot of ways, this is really a guy film. 
Like there was this dust up recently on Facebook and in the internet about this guy at I think it was the New York Post or something who wrote some article about how women can't understand Goodfellas. They can't really appreciate it, you know, because it's a guy film and all this stuff. And you want to talk about just a prick waving fest of a film. Glengarry Glenn Ross is really kind of that. And that's not to say ladies can't appreciate it and understand it, but it is really like this is the heart of darkness of the male ego run amok. I mean, this is all about like one-upsmanship and it, it, it takes place in a sales office as opposed to a sports field, but it almost feels like you could have transposed this in some ways to, like I said, to a locker room. And I don't know if you guys know, but a couple years ago, Jason Reitman actually put on an all-female live read of Glengarry Glen Ross back in LA in 2013. Uh, and it was like a one-time only event, but Apparently it got it was you know it got rave reviews and it was it was a sight to behold because it had uh, had a lot of really well known people like Robin Wright and Catherine O'Hara um, and Carla Gugino but they I mean apparently it still translated pretty well but I mean that would have been something I would I would like to see someone do a just a all, another all female live read of Glengarry Glen Ross because I'm sure that it's uh, you know I'm sure that it has a different flavor to it when it is an all female cast as opposed to an all male cast. Do they talk about their dicks that much in this film? I mean, there are movies where it does have that locker room mentality, and you are talking shit about people, and but it's very like fallow centric almost. But this one, it doesn't necessarily seem to be. I mean, obviously, this is the domain of men, especially '84 when this play was out there, '92 when this film is out there, this kind of stuff. But it doesn't feel like they're just you know. Like when Baldwin calls the salesman fucking faggots, it doesn't feel like there's a sexual connotation to it almost. I mean, it, it's, it, it just feels like a very, very pointed insult versus it being like, you know, it, it, the, the inherent thing is when he comes into the room, Baldwin, I'm talking about my dick is bigger than yours, but he never actually comes out and says that because it's much more about the Rolex and this kind of stuff, but it doesn't feel like they actually are talking about their dicks very often. It feels like fuck and shit and all this kind of stuff is just kind of woven in as, the way that these guys speak. I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember a lot of dick talk. The only real references that I can get to that is in Roma's speech where he's talking about, you know, what do you remember about sex and all this? And he's like, my balls felt like, like this, you know, felt like concrete and all this. And then, and then there's the whole thing with Roma again, you know, dressing down Williamson going, who said you could work in a world of men? Oh, right. I don't know whose dick you're sucking on. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then so he those calls are, him a fairy. Yeah, so those are the really the only sort of direct references to the world of men and, you know, sexual anatomy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd be curious to hear that coming out of Carla Gugino's mouth to see how that works. Because I've also heard of female readings of Reservoir Dogs, which is cleverly called Reservoir Cats. Can you believe it? But I think that... Glengarry might work better than Reservoir Dogs when I think about the scenes like the E. Lois scene and stuff where it is more uh, guy kind of stuff than, you know, that girl's ass sitting at my dick. Like that kind of thing. I don't see a whole lot of that in Glengarry. No, and I think that that I think that that's just another, you know, you can attribute that to David Mamet's, you know, script writing is he doesn't have to 
like with Alec Baldwin's character, he doesn't say, oh, you know, I got to, you know, my dick's bigger than yours. He just, you can tell from the way his character talks and the way his character acts that the dude, even if he doesn't have a big dick, he thinks he does. And he knows that they'll pick up that that's the way he thinks. He doesn't have to say it. It's pretty obvious to everybody that this dude is the big shit in the room. I mean, and there's the way he dresses and his swagger. He doesn't have to say it. And I think that that's in a, you know, that really is just the, the kind of the, the way David Mamet writes and just kind of his creative tact is just, he doesn't have to say that. It's like with a lot of things in the movie, he doesn't have to say, Oh, he has a daughter who's in the hospital. You just kind of pick up on it. And I think that that really works. Well, the implication that I always got from. You see this watch? Yeah. That watch costs more than your car. That's another way that men wave their dicks at each other. True. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's that it's like I got bigger toys and more expensive toys than you do. So I'm better than you are. And he even says I, ha- I, I made almost a million dollars last year. How much did you make? And Ed Harris's character just kind of sits there like, oh, shit, I can't even can't even say anything on top of his car and his watch. He made a you know, he made almost a million dollars. You know, I think that that. I think I guess that's why that scene resonates with a lot of people is because they want to believe that they're the Alec Baldwin character when most likely a lot of people who watch this film, you know, can't really understand that because it's just the way the, the the world works. There aren't as many Alec Baldwins out there as there are other people. I think that's a lot of people are like I I want to be him, not you know Ed you know Ed Harris or Alan Arkin. Yeah, you want to be the alpha male. Yeah. What do you guys think of this whole Goodfellas dust-up that Rob was referring to? I mean, I haven't read the original article. I've only read those nice, convenient Facebook sound bites where it's like, this guy thinks that women can't understand Goodfellas. I never read farther than that, so I don't know if I necessarily should have an opinion. The first thing that came to my mind was the person who made me appreciate Goodfellas was a woman because I didn't like it the first time I saw it, but it was my ex-wife's favorite film. So we watched it together and I said, okay, yeah, this does have a lot of merit. And then I kind of became this huge fan over the years and everything. So I figured she appreciated Goodfellas more than I did, but I don't know if that's necessarily what this writer is trying to say, appreciate it on what level necessarily. I don't know if one has to be a certain gender to enjoy a certain film. I mean, that's kind of like saying, can a guy really enjoy a film like uh, Pitch Perfect because it's a all primarily female cast? Do you have to be a woman to enjoy that film or can you just enjoy it for what it is and what it's talking about? Does I mean, whenever I've watched Goodfellas, which is a film that I uh, enjoy, I've enjoyed it less and less the more times I've watched it, but it's still a film that I hold in high regard. I've never seen it to be a, you know, a film that only guys can get. I mean, that's like saying any Tarantino film is a guy, a movie that only guys can get. Um, but I, I've never, I've never felt that you have to be a certain gender, age, race, or anything to really like a film. I mean, understanding it is kind of an age thing, but I've never felt like you have to be a certain gender to understand a film. There is, uh, I'll give you the inverse of this for myself. When I was working at the Main Art Theater, there was uh, Catherine Berlay's um, romance came through. And when I saw it, I was 21, 22 years old. And I walked away from the film going, eh, it doesn't really speak to my experience. But I can understand how this film might be of more interest to 
women who are either my age or older who have had relationships or felt certain ways about their relationships. And much like how I explained it to someone is I can understand how, you know, there are certain movies that are for kids because that's how they're made. They're made for, you know, for kids. It's, It's where they can cross over to a broader audience and play to many different levels that, that makes a film much more valuable in my mind. I think that the best films, though, are the ones, as you were saying, that speak to sort of a universal experience or, or help us to understand uh, an experience like being in the mob that most of us would never be a part of. And I, I'm surprised that they singled out Goodfellas as the film of choice for this argument. That seems like a really odd choice. There are a lot more male-centric films, like even Reservoir Dogs, which we were just talking about. That's way more of a male-centric film or even – as the question was posed, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, way more male centric. Cause at least in Goodfellas, there are female characters that do share screen time with Ray Liotta and, you know, Robert De Niro. His, I mean, Karen's Ray Liotta's got a wife. Voiceover. Yeah. yeah. I, it's kind of a strange choice. You know, there are a lot more male centric films out there. I guess, you know, okay, go after Scorsese, one of Scorsese's best films, but that's just kind of a strange choice in my mind. Well, I would say that probably Mean Streets is actually more of a male-centric film, you know, than Goodfellas. Yeah. Well, you know, know, it's like I've never been to an all-black college like uh, Rachel Dolezal or something, but I can understand school days. I might appreciate it more if I went to Howard or something, but I think that even when it comes to, you know, different ethnicities, it's just as um, easy to be able to relate to something just like, you know, being able to watch a a chick flick versus a dick flick, you know, I'm fine as long as I can kind of relate to, or if the storytelling is such, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a reflection in my life. That's not necessarily why I go to the movies. So seeing different cultures, different perspectives, different, you know, whatever's reflected, as long as I can get into the story, I think that's more than who's on screen is how, how is the story coming to me? Can I relate to the story in so far as there is a, some sort of protagonist, maybe, and I can just kind of follow them. You know, I, I can understand samurai films, and I've never been to, to Japan. I thought you were a samurai for a while. <sighs> I'm big in Japan, but I'm big in Michigan, too. Let's take a break and play a pair of interviews, first with actor Ed Harris, and second, the second part of our interview with director James Foley, after these messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. 
chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. early days like for you? I mean, uh, did you, you know, start out in theater and eventually work your way into film and, and how was it? Was it a bit of a struggle starting out? I got out of CalArts in 75 and I worked in the theater in Passion for a couple of years. For like a year and a half, did two plays there. And then back in those days, all the equity was easy. They had pretty much open audition. And so I actually did, God, 12, 15 plays in two or four years just all over L.A., uh, some good, some not so good. And a buddy of mine that I'd gone to school with asked me if I wanted to audition for a, help him read a scene for an agent, and the agent wanted to sign me and not him. 
And uh, so I worked with that agent for a while. I started going around these you know, SI things, and I finally got cast. And uh, any casting directors, they like the lowest on the totem pole, and some of them were a little asshole. You know, but I finally got a job on a thing called Gigsville. It was, um, I, did, I worked at Cobra Fest there, and it was a series with um, John Savage and David Young. I think they did like, based on John Harris stories. Anyway, and then I did, you know, I did like Rockwood Files, Ships, Heart to Heart, New Grant, you know, all the shows that were on at the time, Del Vecchio. And then um, first time I did it one day on Coma, Michael Crichton movie, and I had Borderline with Charles Johnson. And then I did Night Riders with George Romero. It wasn't until '82 when I did the right stuff, probably, that things started kind of moving in a more of a upward direction, I guess you could say. Yeah, you were on a couple of those early Romeros between that and Creepshow. How was it yeah, working right. with the, yeah. <laughs> how, how was it working with Romero? I like George a lot, you know. He's kind of fallen off the map. He went up to Toronto. I mean, he had a lot of scripts over the years that that he had, that was I thought was pretty interesting, but he just, it was tough for him to get anything going. I liked working with him. I met some really good people on Stone Touch in those days, and, uh, you know, Night Rogers was pretty fun. It's, it's kind of a strange cult little movie, but I had a good time. I learned a lot. Do people still give you crap for your dancing that you did in uh, Creep Show? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that in so long, man. <laughs> it still holds up. It's still a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've played a lot of real people, John Glenn, Jackson Pollock, John McCain. When you play those roles, are there any kind of special considerations you have to make uh, playing a fictional character versus playing a, a real character? Well, you know, I mean, the guys, people that are still alive, I mean, I never met Clint, I never met Glenn, Pollock was dead, uh, but I met a lot of people that knew Pollock. I held his memory pretty dear to them. It was, that was a, we had to do a lot of diplomacy to get that thing going, but, you know, I, I was determined to do it. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, you just, I don't know, there's a lot of research you can do for people that, you know, were real characters in life, and uh, you just feel like you want to do justice to their, you know, whatever, however their life's being portrayed on a screen. I don't feel any particular pressure, but, you, you know, it's a little, it's different, mainly because of the research, and you can hear their voice, and in some cases, see footage of them, uh, read about them, et cetera, et cetera, so, you know, you just have that much more information to work with as an actor, so, you know, I like it, man. I gotta say, one of my favorite roles of yours, I don't know if you get a lot of praise for this one still or not, but you in um, Sweet Dreams, I really thought that your performance of uh, Charlie Dick was amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I had a good time. I really liked working with Kyle Rice a lot. He was a really great guy. He left all too soon. But that was, uh, yeah, that was a good shoot. I had a good time doing that. Thank you. So the movie that we're talking primarily about today, Glengarry Glenn Ross, how did you kind of come to that role? I remember they asked me to come in. I think it was going to write somewhere. Al was out here. And I went in this Al, Al and Jamie Foley. I don't remember if I read for them or we just talked. I don't remember. But then they asked me, you know, I was asked to play a Moss. And uh, I had not seen the play. And I said, sure, you know, it was exciting. And then it was kind of a cool shoot because we actually rehearsed for 
kind of close to two weeks in the office primarily because, you know, it was based on the play and there was a lot of a lot of scenes in the office, a lot of choreography in terms of where we were and what was going on. And so that was really helpful. I enjoyed it. You know, and, you know I was working with some really good actors, so it was fun. I had a ball working with Arkin. I really had a good time with Alan Arkin. He dragged me up. Yeah, the scene of you trying to convince him to rob the office is just such a standout <laughs> for me. Yeah, thanks. I was about it. Yeah, it was fun. It's got to be interesting to have such a just an amazing cast to to be playing off against. Um, did you find that at all intimidating? You know, playing against somebody like a Jack Lemon. Not at all. I just found it exciting. I mean, you know, the better actors you work with, the better you're going to be, and to feel like I'm acting a part of anybody. I felt that in those days, and I feel it now. So it was just good. It was just a good experience. You know, I mean. It's like working with really good people. It's just, you know, up to the ante and you just want to do your best job. I mean, I always want to do that anyway. When you're working with people that you really respect and uh, just do your wonderful performances, you know, you just uh, get out of your best team on. So it was fun. It was really fun. Did you know anybody like a Dave Moss before you went into this role? Not really. You know, I'm being, uh, you're running like RCL or some, any kind of guy who's something, um, has a certain attitude or certain way they go about things, I guess, probably for a few things, some people I don't really even remember, but no, I didn't know anyone in particular, you know, that I was going to face on. The script's pretty strong, you know, and the dialogue is, is what it is, and it was much more about that and getting the, getting familiar with that and feeling comfortable with the pressure that you're under, and, you know, the whole kind of whatever it is that you're, what is it, you got to, you know, close the deal or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> <laughs> leads, you got to get the leads, man, you know. It just, it has such its own language to it. Just the, yeah, the leads and the, the sits and all this, vernacular that is just remarkable. I mean, I have run into, you know, I, I, I really like in a hotel or something or some convention or some salespeople or something and somebody will recognize me and they go, yeah, I love that Glenn. It's just what we do, blah, 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 you know. So I think it came across pretty well. Even amongst non-salespeople, the film really resonates still today. Why do you think that it has such staying power? Well, because I think, hey, it's a really good script. You know, it's, and I think it's kind of the portrayal of these guys is so unequivocal. Unequivocal is a word. It's just like kind of down there, and it feels kind of true. And you know, it's extreme at times. It's just you know, you got a bunch of really good actors doing this stuff, and so and it's a, Jamie made a really good film. I mean, the thing just because you have a good script and good actors doesn't mean the film's necessarily going to work unless it's put together well, shot well, edited well. And, um, you know, it's a very kind of complete film. I think it's I think it's done really well. It has resonance and, you know, any, any, any good film, no matter what it's about, has staying power, you know. Well, speaking of good films, you've directed two features now, Pollock and Appaloosa. How does being an actor kind of inform your directing versus, you know, directing and forming your acting, how was that transition for you? And I mean, obviously you're in both of these films, the very prominent roles. 
I don't know. I mean, the Pollock thing, I, I, I worked on, I really worked on Pollock for close to a decade in terms of the script and meeting people, getting the rights for the paintings, starting to paint myself. I hadn't planned on directing that until about a year before I shot it. And then, because I just didn't, I realized I had a particular feeling about it. I just want to hand it over to somebody. And uh, I figured I probably knew more than I thought I knew about camera, et cetera, et cetera. And even though it was a very difficult shoot, I felt good about the outcome. And then Appaloosa, I was kind of much better prepared. And well, I think, and then I was saying that I finally found another, I love directing, I really do. And if I finally found another property, I just couldn't a script on it. So I hope to get shooting that next year. But the thing about ha- having directed is, you realize what the you know when you're just acting in a film, you realize what the director's dealing with. You know, it's not just the actors. I mean, he's, you're constantly answering questions. You got to stay in the moment. You you know, your day, your nights are filled. It's a you know you're the man in charge, and so it gives you a gives me a much better appreciation for whoever I'm working with in terms of what they're dealing with. You know, kind of uh, you you've walked in the other guy's shoes a little bit, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I really do love the directing thing. I've been wanting to direct another film for since I shot Appaloosa, which was in '07, and I finally, you know, a couple things I wanted to do, and some other people had to write, blah blah blah, and I finally found this, read this novel a few months ago that I think could make a really cool movie. So that's what I'm hoping to do. I really enjoyed both of those films, um, Pollock and Appaloosa. I really liked the relationship that you had with your co-stars in those, especially the relationship that you had with uh, Viggo Mortensen, just that easy friendship that you had. Was that fairly easy to get? Was it the same off-screen as it was on? Mm, yeah, you know, I got along with Viggo fine, but I haven't seen her, seen him since we shot it, so... It's not like we're the best buddies in the world or anything. I think we both have a lot of respect for each other. But, you know, the script was pretty strong. And when I started reading that book, Parker's book, Appaloosa, I, I don't think I read more than two or three chapters. And I just fell in love with these, the way these guys were with each other. And I called my agent. I said, see if this book is, you know, available. And it was. So, yeah, no, Vigo was great. I loved working with him, you know. And I really, I do think that, I mean, the story is about friendship, you know, and, I think it works that way. I'm trying to remember. Was that one before History of Violence or after? It was after because I met okay. I met Vigo until History of Violence. Okay, uh, so and I think so I gave history. Him, yeah, I think I might have given him a book during History of Violence and asked him to you know take a look at it. And I said, if I get a good script in this, would you you know do it with me? And when he read the script, he said, Yeah, I'll do it. And then there were some problems. He, he at one point he said, Look at, I'm so busy, I don't think I can do it. And I said, well, if I, you know, I'll try to find somebody else, but if I can't, you know, he promised me he'd do it. And I said, well, so I really got a list of like 20 guys, none of which I wanted to work with necessarily, but 18 of them were busy and two of them didn't want to do it or whatever. I don't remember. So I said, I'm sorry, man, but you know, I can't find anybody. And so he showed up and he showed up like a day before, ready to go. You know, he, he was working really hard at that time. He's done things back to back to back, but. He was a man of his word, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, there was a time there where I couldn't turn on TV or go out to the movies without seeing him, it felt like. Yeah, he was really, he almost wore himself out. He was really busy there for a spell. How was it working with David Cronenberg on History of Violence? 
Well, you know, Cronenberg's one of those guys where you enter, like, it's like working with Clint or Eastwood or somebody. It's like entering their world, you know, the way they do things. And people that have pretty strong, you know, a strong vision of what he wants to do. I kind of think that that film's almost like a perfect film in a way. The way, like every shot, you know, I know it was based on a graphic novel, but I, I just think he really nailed it. And so it was great. I mean, I didn't become, you know, I haven't worked with him since. I haven't really seen him since. We didn't become like partners or anything like Vigo and he did, but uh, you know I certainly appreciate his uh, aesthetic and his professionalism. I, you know I like working with him. I was curious, what attracted you to Snowpiercer? I looked, I looked at three films by director Bond: The Host, Mother, Memories of Murder, and I said I want to work with this guy. That was after they had asked me if I'd do it. I, I just think he's a really great director, man. I just and it was a trip, you know. Such a such a great strong film, you know. Just I know they really Harvey really kind of dumped it, you know, because Harvey wanted them to cut like twenty twenty five minutes from it, and Director Bong just said no, and as a result, Harvey didn't really, you know, get behind it very much. Weinstein. But what are some of the other films that you've made where maybe people don't necessarily come up to you all the time, like, oh hey, I loved you in this or that, but maybe they should. What are the ones that the hidden gems for you? I don't know. I made an indie film not too long ago called Frontera that's actually a pretty good movie with, uh, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting names. Michael Pena and, uh, and Eva Longoria and uh, Aiden, who's in Rectify, and uh, my wife Amy was in it. It's a pretty good story. I felt really good about it. It kind of takes place on the border of Arizona. The thing I did with uh, Annette Benning, Face, Face of Love, I think it's kind of fun. You know, I've been doing a lot. Been doing a lot of these indie movies that nobody ever really sees. Uh, Played great, great character in this film called Sweetwater that the Miller brothers did. I've done two films with those guys. The other one's Touching Home, which I also felt really good about my my work in that. Um, but you know, like The Hours, I felt really good about Jackknife, which was a long time ago. I thought it was a good performance. Uh, I don't know. You know, I've done like so many movies that. There's a few clunkers in there, but most of them I feel pretty good about. Oh, as well you should. Yeah, I know that you're coming up in the uh, the Westworld TV show, and I'm really excited yeah. to see you yeah. as the Man in Black. Right. Um, what what other kind of stuff do you have coming out that you're excited about? Mm, well, you know, I worked with uh, Dean Devlin on this thing called Geostorm, a big kind of production deal. It's kind of fun. It's probably not coming out till next fall. Um, I don't think there's anything else in the can, really. I'm going to do a Buried Child, a Sam Shepard play that won a Pulitzer Prize in New York. Start, we're going to start rehearsals in January. I'm going to do it with my wife, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but Westworld kind of like got me... We, we were supposed to start filming end of April, and they pushed it to July, so there were a couple things I could have done earlier this year that I didn't do, so I'm going to be busy with Westworld pretty much till December. So... Uh, and then I'm going to do the play, and then I hope you get this movie off the ground that I want to shoot. So we'll see what happens. It doesn't seem like you take too many breaks. Well, I like to put it. What is this? This is June, right? I haven't worked. I haven't worked all year, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't worked since first of the year. Because of the Westworld delay? Well, part of that, well, yeah. I mean, like, I was talking to Quentin about working on his picture, and I was going to do it, but there was potential conflict with Westworld because we were supposed to start in April. Of course, and we never did. And you know, a couple other things that might have 
happen, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I can definitely see you. It's, it's nice because I was a fan of your work in Walker. So I always enjoy it. And then uh, of course, <laughs> right, Appaloosa. <laughs> so seeing you in these kind of, you know, like spaghetti or otherwise Westerns is, uh, it's always a nice surprise when you show up in those roles. So I, I would have liked to have seen you in the hateful eight, but I'm going to enjoy seeing you as the man in black. All right. Yeah. I think it could be pretty cool. And I have no idea where the thing's going. I had a good time shooting the pilot. Just supposed to get the script for the first episode here in a day now. I haven't seen anything. So we'll see where it's going to lead us, but uh, I think it'd be pretty cool. And I'm really excited to hear that you're going to be directing again soon. That is terrific. Yeah, I can't wait. It's probably, you know, going to take a while, but uh, I'm going to do this film. Probably not be able to shoot it before next fall, but it's a really pretty cool story. So we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, hey, Mr. Harris, thank you again for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, thank you and uh, all the best. I was going to ask you about uh, your follow-up, the feature right after, which is Glengarry Glenn Ross, and how did that come to you? Did you seek that out, or did someone buy the rights to the play, and then they were looking to make it? No, that was pure uh, Al Pacino. I, um, after At Close Range, I got this call from uh, my agent, who happened to also be Al Pacino's agent, and... Um, said, you know, Al saw your film and really liked it and would like to meet you. And I said, okay, yeah, that'd be great. When? And this was in the 80s, so you can imagine the the cell phone he had. <laughs> he said, well, he's actually in a car outside your house. <laughs> so I said, um, well, great. Sure, I'll go out and I'll meet him. And um, they uh, carrying uh, four or five scripts uh, under his arm. And um, one of them was the movie Seven, interestingly enough, and another was Glengarry Ben Ross. And uh, he said, you know, I really like the movie Close Range, blah, 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 blah. These are the movies that I want to make. And if any of these appeal to you, you know, let's make it. And we toyed with Seven uh, for a long time, but ultimately I couldn't figure out, and I've talked to Fincher about this, I couldn't figure out how to do it without grossing myself out. Uh, something I think he successfully did, David. Obviously, he was successful. My second favorite thing was Glengarry, and I had seen the play, but the script was much more satisfying to me than the play because of the addition of the Baldwin character seemed to give it a much more of a powerful impetus and structure and momentum. Um, so at this point, I can't imagine seeing stage play without Alec in it. So it was Al who sucked me into that. And Mamet had written the script. A producer, Jerry Tukowski, had uh, about a year or so before just thrown a million bucks at Mamet to write a screenplay, which Mamet did. And he was not, it was very early in Mamet's career. I I have to look it up whether he had made a movie or not already. Uh, I guess he had directed something. But 
he wasn't tasked to direct this and wasn't trying to, interestingly enough. But I remember that I, um, and I knew it had won a Pulitzer and he was David Mamet and I just felt like I have to sit down with him once before I make this movie to get his blessing, if nothing else. And I, at the time, he had an office in um, Cambridge, directly across the street from the main gates of Harvard. And I went up there to meet him, and we walked around the campus for a couple of hours. And I asked him, I said, you know, what's your worst fear about what could happen making the movie? What, what could happen, you know, by trying to make this movie? And he said his worst fear was that somehow it wouldn't get made. <laughs> Which was so bizarre. But that was his only fear was that um, it somehow this whole thing would fall apart and then get made. And um, I invited him to come to rehearsals or, you know, visit the set or whatever, but he never did. And I only had one interaction with him after that, which was after we were rehearsing for a couple of weeks. It was an unusual thing that we had three weeks of rehearsal before we started shooting. And uh, we wanted to break down the script and, for myself and the actors to understand every single word and every single incomplete sentence, you know, dot, dot, dot. And there was one exchange that we really couldn't decipher. So I called him up and I said, you know, there's just this one sentence here that we can't figure out what the fuck it means. And he said, read it to me. And I did. And he said, it was silence. <laughs> and I said, hello. He says, I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. If you don't know what it means, then I'm not going to worry about it, and we'll just say it. And he says, well, maybe it's a typo. <laughs> so was the one change in the script was that we excised that one sentence because neither David Mamet could not uh, remember what it meant. But we made the film, and it was a really historically great experience because um, it was the most frictionless. I think back on about why that was, and I realized that all the actors that were cast were perfectly suited to, I mean, the hierarchy of what went on in the office and who was who, who was the big man in the office, who was the guy who used to be the top man but now was in decline, Jack Lemmon, and who was the current big man, Al Pacino, and then who was the young stud coming in, flashy guy was Alec Baldwin, and that's all who they were in Hollywood, including Ed Harris being a supporting player, uh, respected, but always a supporting player. So when we actually went to make the movie, everybody kind of respected their place in the hierarchy and fell into a situation where, and also I have to give credit to the idea that they were all working off of the script that was revered. So there was no breakdown of ah, my character wouldn't say this or let's change this line to this or something like that. There was none of that. So it was a very disciplined, very um, kind of focused uh, production that went down very easily. And actually we finished the day ahead of schedule. It was so uh, effortless, but that was, you know, a lesson to me that the right school just get out of the way and let it happen. And it did a very, uh, very lucky for that. I was just going to ask on the casting, you know, you said that it was thanks to Al Pacino because he wanted to do it. Did Was that the reason that the yeah. cast came together or were there other people in consideration at that time? Yeah. No, it was it was just Al and um, he was certainly flying. 
happened. Um, Jack Lemmon very much was, uh, it seems shocking to say now, but very much was campaigning for it. Uh, he wasn't at the height of his popularity, but he was unabashed in his calling me up and campaigning for the part to lead for it. That's not going to happen. But um, it became clear that he was the right guy. And um, it's funny, because just recently sent me a photo through Facebook that they had found somewhere taken on the set of me talking to Jack Lemmon and like with pointing with my finger at him as if I was like instructing him to do something. And I looked at it and I thought, what the fuck drug was I on that I thought I could direct Jack Lemmon? <laughs> and I had to give all the credit to him because he was so open to that and, uh, and unabashed at, at wanting to be directed, as I said, you know, about, about all actors, Spacey and everything else, that Jack Lemmon, even at that time, I remember one of the first things we did, he got a little bit too emotional and sentimental and kind of cheered up at a place where it didn't seem appropriate, you know? And I said, cut. And I started walking towards him and my mind was racing, thinking, what the fuck am I going to say to Jack Lemmon? that he's being too sentimental. So I go up to him and I begin to speak. I said, you know, I think it's a little bit too... And he interrupted and said, lemony. It's too lemony, isn't it? And I said, yes. <laughs> and I walked away really fast. And we did it again. He was great. And he talked to me later and was saying how he was so glad that I caught that because, you know, you do certain roles and then act directors want he was telling me that he did certain roles and then he would do subsequent movies and directors would want him to be like the character they had seen in a previous movie, which of course means nothing to the current character you're approaching. And he said, so if I do save the tiger, then the next three movies, directors are saying to me, you know, do it like the scene you did in save the tiger. And he said, well, this isn't save the tiger. <laughs> so why would I do a scene like that? So he had fallen into bad habits. He said, but, I mean, to be that open, Jack Lemmon, and to, um, at that age, with all that acclaim behind him, really um, gets me in the gut and teaches me a lesson about humility that, uh, again, I feel like a, a lucky son of a bitch. You know, at the top, when uh, when we started the call, you were talking about uh, Kevin Spacey and working with him on House of Cards and... When he came onto this uh, to do Glenn Gary, he wasn't, I mean, he had been in a few things, but he wasn't as known until after, ironically, I would say, right. or coincidentally, Seven kind of helped to really right. push him out further. Uh, what do you remember about his casting yeah. and working with him early? Well, I remember that uh, it was, again, Al Pacino who said to me, um, you got to see this guy. You got to see this guy. And he took me to see... Um, Yonkers, what is it? Um, a Neil Simon play about Yonkers. Oh, uh, Lost, in, Lost in, Yonkers. in Yonkers? Or? Lost in Yonkers, isn't it? I'm not sorry. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and he was clearly uh, prodigiously talented, son of a bitch. And uh, we met him afterwards and stuff, and I really liked him, and he got cast. And But he was, you know, he was the low man, the totem pole, and he happily accepted that. He had worked once before with Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon was kind of his mentor and had, um, and that was coincidental because it was Pacino who turned me on to Spacey, but then it turned out that Spacey 
So that worked. That was, again, serendipitous. And the scenes that they had together uh, were very important. And um, Kevin was really in awe of him and all the actors, and which is all the way I always remember Kevin, of being sort of on the set of Glengarry, so happy to be in a movie with all these great actors. So when I'm directing him in House of Cards and actors come on to do one or two days or something and they're in awe of him, it really gives me a smile. You know, how it, what comes around goes around. So when you read the original version of the script, the Alec Baldwin opening was already there because, or was that created as yeah. you were trying to put it into production? Because I've seen stage plays version, stage versions of it now where they'll add it in because actually the play starts at the Chinese restaurant supposedly after this speech from what I remember. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I can't remember the, uh, the play anymore because the movie is so ingrained in my head, but, um, no, that was totally done. I mean, Mamet did it on his own, added the Baldwin character, and um, I always thought it was kind of his next iteration of the play. It was like the further development of the play. So I've always thought it would be interesting to mount the play with that character in it. I, I don't know if it's been done. I know that there's you know, it's all sorts of legal things. You can't just take the screenplay and put it on this play. But uh, it would be something I'd be interested in doing with the new generation of actors. You got anything, Mike? Yeah, I was curious Mike about... Um, sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> I was curious... Uh, how, <laughs> how do you uh, feel about the parody character of uh, Jack Lemon that's on The Simpsons? I'm a bitch, you know, I I watch The Simpsons, not religiously, but you're telling me something I didn't know. There's a there's a parody character, Jack Lemon, on The Simpsons? I didn't know that. Yeah, there's this character what, uh, named Gil, and he's this loser in a uh, rumpled suit, and he always comes in, and he's trying to get a different job, and he's just like, things aren't working out for old Gil. <laughs> it's so oh, good. Oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, I gotta check that out. Is that in recent seasons or a couple of years ago? Oh, or? it's it's he has is still around, and uh, but yeah, he just showed up on a recent one. I haven't watched The Simpsons in a few years, but I did catch him recently when Marge was no. opening up a restaurant of some sort. So even oh. up to this season, yeah, yeah. No, I've got to check that out. Um, now, one of my great uh, the number of people who I meet who are salesmen and somehow you get to talking and you know, what do you do? Direct movies. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm Gary. Oh my God. Wait, they showed us that in orientation. <laughs> and apparently it's been used a lot for, um, orientation of salesmen and all sorts of different professions. And they watch it as a, um, lesson, but it has a comedic twist and a kind of dark twist, which amuses me to no end. Um, but they all seem to love it. You know, I, I, and of all the people who like the film salesmen who feel as if it reflects their life and they love that, even however tragic it is kind of satisfying, but it's kind of like better than a review from Vincent Canby is some salesman in Baltimore who I meet at the bar who says that, uh, the movie meant a lot to them in their career. And uh, it's kind of a twisted way to use it, but 
makes me happy. <laughs> well, speaking of Jack Lemon, and I know that Kevin Spacey can do a good one. I was wondering, have you ever been in the room when he oh, would yeah. do the Jack Lemon to Jack Lemon when he was still around? Oh, no, that's funny. <laughs> no, um, when I knew Kevin back in the day, Glen Gary, I didn't, I didn't see him do any imitations. Um, I'm sure he was able to do them, but, um, but it's funny now on, uh, house of cards, he's constantly doing imitations. Like if he fucks up a line, he'll just keep on talking, but he'll switch into his Al Pacino or to his Jack Lemmon or to his, <laughs> and it's brilliant. And it, you know, the whole crew just burst out laughing all the time. And it's a good, it's a great kind of morale thing on the set because Kevin's very entertaining um, when he screws things up, which isn't that often, but often enough to keep the uh, keep the troops uh, happy. <laughs> um, but I, I never saw it do it in front of him. I certainly have seen him uh, both in life and in on um, Letterman or something do Al Pacino in front of Al Pacino, and Al gets the biggest kick out of it. That's for sure. That's great. Did I read right that you're doing a remake of Jacob's Ladder? <laughs> um, I wouldn't call it a remake. Okay. I call it uh, um, what happened was that the producers did purchase the rights to Jacob's Ladder. And um, before I got involved, they got a writer and they fashioned a script which has certain almost small things that are similar, but the basic thing of what the hook was of Jacob's ladder that he was dying or dead and uh, waiting to get into his next phase of the afterlife is not part of the movie. It's a movie that involves uh, two brothers who were both in um, Afghanistan and uh, one of them um, dies there or does he? Mm. <laughs> or did he? And um, it's a script I really like. It's a very emotional uh, thing about brothers. I keep on getting drawn to these movies about male dynamics, brothers and friends and fathers and sons. And um, it's a script that um, has some life into it, and I'm hoping to uh, make it um, in 2015. And perhaps with an, uh, a black cast, which is really interesting, two black brothers. Um, so that's uh, kind of hopefully my next move. Very cool. You know, you said that starting out for you, yeah. you were studying originally to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I was wondering, do you think that it's that right. interest in psychology that makes it interesting for you to do these films and work? Yeah, always. I mean, I've always been interested. I mean, starting with my own self-reflection, I suppose, growing up. Um, always been interested in what's happening on a other-than-conscious, first-level reality. Um, what's the subtext? I guess that's the simplest way to put it. What is the fucking subtext of what's going on? And um, so my interest in psychology was in kind of really Freudian psychoanalysis trying to get at the unconscious and the subtext. And um, so to me, uh, I've always been interested in, in films uh, and um, I 
have always liked kind of exploring and asking questions as to people's motivations and contradictions and that thing where something is opposite of the same thing. All those kinds of Freudian ironies have always intrigued me the most for me to uh, material. And this Jacob Slatter thing is kind of rife with that. Oh, yeah. It sounds totally like it's going to be right in your sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, seems to be coming together. That's great. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. Good. Um, good for me, too. Good to, uh, good to kind of put in context yeah. the path that got me here. Yeah. So hopefully it uh, informs the path ahead. Exactly. Well, hey, best of luck with the rest of House of Cards. That's terrific. Yeah. And and from the way you phrased it, it well, sounds... Need that. And and from the way you phrased it, it doesn't sound like it's ending after a third season. <laughs> no. There's uh, definitely a fourth and perhaps a fifth, but well, uh, the fourth is definitely happening. Wow. And uh, I'll just tell you this. To film the season finale, I'm heading out to Santa Fe, New Mexico. No spoilers, but <laughs> that's an odd sort of... Uh, Odd sort of change of location. Hmm. Definitely. A lot of holes in the desert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens out there. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for your time. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, thanks to Ed Harris and James Foley for taking the time to talk to us. That was the second part of our interview with James Foley. You can go back and hear the first part on last week's episode when we talk about his film After Dark, My Sweet. But this week we are talking about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And I was so amazed that Mr. Foley hadn't heard of Gil Gunderson. I'm very happy to have been able to bring a little Gil Gunderson into his life. This is very nice. Explain. Uh, I think you explained a little bit, but uh, maybe we need to hear a little bit of this and uh, talk about uh, exactly who Mr. Gil Gunderson is. Old Gil has been around since the ninth season, I think, of The Simpsons, and he is a uh, real estate agent. We first see him as a real estate agent with Lionel Hutz's uh, Red Blazer Realty, so a little uh, 20... For, uh, 20 21st century realty kind of uh, knockoff. And he is <laughs> he is the loser, just the consummate loser. And it feels kind of bad after you watch Glenn Gary Glenn Ross to see Gil and just how he nothing goes right for old Gil, but really he's just become kind of the uh, the pop culture. Uh, every man who can never get ahead. He is the, the Sisyphus of the Simpsons. And I just uh, always appreciate seeing old Gil show up. And especially if there's odd jobs to be done, Gil's there. Oh, this is bad. This is really bad. You work and you slave and you steal just enough for a sweet lick of that shiny brass ring. Don't I get a lick? Doesn't Gil get a lick? I think I even saw him in the last season, which I haven't really watched The Simpsons in the last few years. He showed up as like, uh, he was working at Marge's rest restaurant that she uh, was doing, working alongside like the perpetual teenage boy kind of character. Where else do you um, see references to Glengarry Glenn Ross out there? 
Well, I mean, like Chris was saying, I am hearing uh, the Baldwin speech, not only in um, my own speech. I mean, I often say... The good news is you're fired. Especially if I... (laughs) I invite any of uh, my fellow employees into a meeting. Um, just um, I like to start it off with that one, um, which is not very nice of me at all. So, um, but yeah, that's uh, Gil is the biggest one, and then yeah, I've seen other references, but I think the Baldwin speech has definitely become part of of pop culture. And for me, obviously, working in public radio for seven years. The most interesting place where the Baldwin speech popped up was taking something that is caustic and a takedown and, you know, jarring in the film, but humorous, obviously, darkly humorous, and turning it in to an NPR fundraising spot that Alec Baldwin did. <laughs> a, a couple of years ago, Alec Baldwin did a series of fundraising spots that were available to any NPR station, member station to use during fundraisers. Some of them were riffs on his character on 30 Rock. Um, some of them were just him goofing around, holding um, host hostage. For example, he had one where he said that, um, you know, if you don't give during the fundraiser, we're going to uh, redirect some of the talent here such as we're going to have Ira Glass uh, work at a station in Mexico. You depend on programs like these, which is why... Radio Exitos. You really ought to pick up the phone and contribute now. Tenemos aquí todos los éxitos. Because until you do, we've reassigned Ira Glass to a Spanish pop station. Todo el día. You do like hearing This American Life, don't you? Sigalo. Well, then you need to ask yourself, what will it take to make you pledge? What do we have to do? How far do we have to go? And then the big one was the always be pledging riff on his speech in Glengarry Glen Ross. Let's talk about something important. You call yourself a WNYC listener. Well, how about you call yourself a pledger? Put that coffee down. Coffee is for pledgers only. Oh, have I got your attention now? Only one thing counts in this life, and that is pledging public radio. And if you can't pledge public radio, then goodbye. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it. Nice guy? Who cares? Successful at your job? I don't give a damn. Good parent? Go home and play with your kids. You want to support WNYC? Then pledge. A B P. A always B B P pledging. Always be pledging. Always be pledging. We've got the new thank you gifts, tote bags, New Yorker subscriptions, baseball shirts, cookbooks. You want them? They're for pledgers. Always be pledging. The money's out there. They're waiting for you to pledge it. You don't? I got no sympathy for you. Always be pledging. Always be pledging. All you have to do is call 1-888-3769. Nice. I've seen a couple bands out there that have you know, named their songs, you know, um, like always be closing and stuff like that. But for me personally, the, you know, the one like Mike was talking about, you know, good news, you're fired. The one that has kind of wiggled its way into my like daily talk with some of my writers is, you know, fuck or walk, you close or you hit the bricks. That to me, you know, is kind of like the line from, and maybe he was kind of mirroring it a little bit in clerks, Um, you know, when Randall says to Dante, you know, shit or get off the pot that to me, you know, I don't know if Kevin Smith 
drew from that or not, but that always kind of struck me as the same. You're talking about kind of the same thing here. Like either do it or don't, but we're not sitting here waiting for you to think about it. And, you know, that that to me has kind of wiggled its way into my personal, you know, daily speak. But I, I think that that maybe inadvertently is also kind of, you know, a reference to that. I know Crow on Mystery Science Theater uh, professed a few times that he wanted those Glengarry Glen Gary leads, which was always good <laughs> for me. For me, it was kind of like, you know, Mystery Science Theater was always such a litmus test as far as things being successfully translated from the world of pop culture or beyond pop culture into, you know, the, the zeitgeist and having crow making references to the Glengarry leads was, uh, was a pretty good win. Yeah. I can't really think of too many other references off the top of my head, but I'm sure if anyone has any, you know, feel free to tweet them at us or make comments at projection dash booth.com on the episode. Cause like, I'd love to hear if there are any other ones out there floating in the ether, but besides the ones we discussed, but you know, really the film, like we said, uh, it does deal with uh, salesmen. And there are, you know, several sort of uh, marquee films or marquee ideas within the culture. And, you know, Death of a Salesman, obviously, as I referenced at the top, you know, Willie Loman and all of that stuff. And you have the, the performance with um, Dustin Hoffman several years ago that was um, well-received and things like that. And then uh, someone else on the show earlier, I think it was you, Mike, brought up Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, even Wall Street to a certain extent, I guess, the Oliver Stone film. So um, where else do you also see um, salesmen uh, in in pop culture that you think maybe owes a nod back or sort of shares some sort of similarities to what we see in the film? Well, there was, uh, I think, you, did you mention the males' Brothers movie salesman. Well, that's that's the last one that I have on the list here, and I wanted to sort of single that one out and talk about it because that one, that one I really like. I I think if you haven't seen Salesman, the the Maisel's Brothers documentary, you really missing out, and uh, and you should watch it. Well, there's another film that came out back in '96, so it was just a uh, four years after Glengarry Glen Ross, and it was kind of a mix of Glengarry and Salesman at the same time, and it was called the Bible and Gun Club, and I want to say that it played like I want to say Slam Dance versus Sundance, but I could be wrong on that, and but that was a really nice like. I won't say faux documentary, but they definitely took a lot of stuff from salesmen. So you had that documentary feel to it. And it was just this kind of, it was kind of a silly premise, but they played it off very straight. And is, is this whole thing? Cause it's a uh, Bible salesman in salesman, the Maisel's brothers film. And then in this they're they sell Bibles and guns. So really kind of skewers, you know, the, the right and everything. And this was before, you know, like Fahrenheit nine 11 with, uh, you know, open up a bank account and you get a free gun kind of thing. But it was very much like, uh, you know, what goes together better than Bibles and guns. You can't have one without the other. And just some of the, the speeches and the the sales tactics that they used in this film was really good. Yeah, the Maisel's Brothers documentary is from the early 60s, um, and I think it takes place in Florida. And you get some of the behind the scenes of, you know, here's the Bibles and here's how to sell them and some of the sort of, you know, 
folks going door to door and trying to sell these things, these really ornate things. And and uh, I think there may also is is there also a thing in there with someone trying to sell vacuum cleaners from what I remember as well think so it's been a long time since i've seen this one and that one unfortunately isn't out there and as popular as some of the other mazel's brothers songs that are songs mazel's brothers films that are kind of you know floating around especially after um albert died recently they did a whole bunch of his stuff on tcm and i can't remember if this was one of them or not but because it just isn't as I you know you can't really say that their films are popular, but as well known as some of their other ones. Well, probably the best known of their stuff is "Give Me Shelter" and "Gray Gardens." But "Salesman" was put out by Criterion, and that's where I remember seeing it on DVD several years ago. Okay, so I was completely wrong about that. Then I can uh, mea culpa, mea culpa. The um, the other one, and I remember the poster and the trailer, but I never saw "Boiler Room." I think it was uh, Ben Affleck and Giovanni Ribisi. Kind of a and my boy Vin Diesel in there, yo. Yeah, I oh never saw God. it. Did you see it? I never saw it, unfortunately. It's the original telling, I believe, of the Wolf of Wall Street story of that oh, okay. of that of Jordan Belfort. I want to say if if my memory serves me right, I've never seen it because I've seen Wolf of Wall Street, and I like watching three hour movies about you know salesmen with Leonardo DiCaprio. But I've I mean I've I've heard good things you know maybe not about Vin Diesel but I can't really get behind Wolf of Wall Street that much I mean I me either you can't get behind yeah. it and snort the coke off the hooker's ass what's your problem now that I would like to do but I'd much rather do it with Neil Patrick Harris so <laughs> I it felt excessive to me yeah I mean which I guess kind of fits with the 80s you know and that kind of level of excessive but yeah, I really was just like, Thelma Ritter, what are you doing? Come on, let's give this thing another trim. Let's take it down. Two hours, in and out. That's it. That's all you got, Marty. Well, Can't take any more of my time than that. Rob Reiner, you're on the cutting room floor. You add nothing <laughs> to this film. See, I heard that the original cut was like four hours plus, And there's Jesus part of me that Christ. goes, maybe it's actually a better film at four hours plus. Like... But um, I don't know if we'll ever see it. It's kind of like one of those mythological things, like the five-hour cut of Apocalypse Now. And I know people that felt like Leonardo DiCaprio was snubbed for an Oscar for that film. And I was just sitting there like, the movie is overindulgent. It's not one of Scorsese's best by any stretch of the imagination. And, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, his character, yeah, he's fun to watch on screen, but I don't think he's a inherently interesting character like a lot of the characters in Glen Gary Glen Ross are the thing that's interesting with Wolf of Wall Street and um, someone who brought this up to us was our good friend Ken Stanley who was on the Life of Brian episode I was out with him one day and he had a theory that actually Wolf of Wall Street is the third part of a trilogy that Scorsese did starting with Goodfellas where it's the street hustler then casino where the street hustler becomes legit and then Wolf of Wall Street is what happens when you become legit so and get respectability. So it's this through line from the street hustler up to the streets to the suites. And I'm like, that seems I, – I could follow that. I could see those three as maybe a, a, a sort of a loose trilogy. I really wish that that were more the case. But what I see when it comes to those three films is he makes Goodfellas. Goodfellas is amazing. Let's recycle some bits from Goodfellas when it comes to Casino. 
And then, you know, we might as well return to the well when it comes to Wolf of Wall Street. It just felt like a each time you were making a Xerox of a Xerox. And it just never... Those other two movies are nowhere near what Goodfellas is to me. I mean, that to me is, you know, you put that one on the mountain and Casino... I haven't seen it since I saw it at the theater. No desire. Same thing with Wolf of Wall Street. I won't be watching that one again anytime soon. I'll watch the little Matthew McConaughey part. That's about it. But yeah, there's just there's nothing for me in those other two movies. Casino has if it's not the last, it's one of the last Saul Bass credit sequences. So if anything, you need to watch it for that. You know. To me, Goodfellas, even though it is like an extremely long film and, you know, it's almost I want to say it's almost three hours long. It doesn't feel like a three hour long movie. It's got a pace that can be sustained throughout the film and it keeps moving and it keeps you interested and engaged throughout the film. Casino has a lot of fat that needs to be trimmed off of it. There are a lot of scenes that, from what I remember, don't serve a whole lot of purpose. And then, like you said, Mike, Wolf of Wall Street is just kind of laden with stuff that is really just it sits there i guess to maybe placate people's contracts or maybe scorsese thought it was a good idea but you know casino and wolf of wall street are not nearly as engaging or kind of sustained pace as goodfellas and i think that that's for me you know performances aside i think that that's why those films don't work for me as much either when you got to the third voiceover in Casino, I was just like, oh my god, is everybody going to have a fucking voiceover in this movie? I just, I checked out right at that moment. You didn't like the voiceover from the valet who parked the car? I couldn't stand that car. It got horrible gas mileage. That's my impersonation of the valet. That's good, I like that. That's good. Thank you. He was a horrible tipper. But the um, the other one from a sales aspect that I just remembered, and um, it's a little bit of a different film. It's a it's a satire comedy kind of piece, and this came on my radar I think in two thousand seven. Is uh, a movie called Believe, and the reason why it came on my radar is I was working in Grand Rapids at the time, the home of Amway, and the premise of Believe is a small independent film that is sort of a takedown of multi-level marketing like Amway and about a guy who is out running his company, which is a multi-level marketing company, and trying to sign people up to um, to be salesmen for him and sort of the uh, the ups and downs of that of trying to find uh, the right people for his you know multi-level marketing scam. Well, we're going to talk about um, William Fickner here in a couple months when we uh, do contact. But one of my favorite scenes of William Fickner and anything was his kind of Amway guy in Go. You've looked around our place. Where do you think we got most of this stuff? Just guess. Come on. Sears? J.C. Penny? It's actually from Confederated Products. Almost everything in this house is from Confederated Products. From the toilet paper, to the, to, to the candles, to the ham. The, the wine. The wine, the wine. It, even that cologne you liked. You see, Confederated Products 
is a multi-level direct wholesaling company, which means we don't just sell the products ourselves. No, sir, you read, Bob. We recruit and manage teams that work under us. Now, Irene and I started eight months ago, and already we're pulling in 50000 a year in revenues. We're the number four distributor in Southern California. You got that one, babe. And by March, we might be number three. And that is definitely uh, a classic scene that stands on its own. Like that's one of those. Like I haven't gone back and watched Go in a long time. I remember it fondly, but really the thing that I remember the most is Fickner in there trying to you know get these guys interested in this multi-level marketing scheme. So just amazing stuff. I don't know if you guys ever kind of felt this way. Have you guys seen the the film? Uh, Thank you for not smoking. I haven't seen that one yet. Thank you that, for smoking. Thank you for smoking. That's right. Um, it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I mean, botched the title. That, to me, it's not sales per se. It's more about lobbying. But that felt close to Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross in my mind in kind of the salesman aspect because there are these kind of scenes that are similar to some of the scenes in Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross, the repertoire between the lobbyists and kind of you know what they're doing and how they're kind of you know, sharks in a, you know, big sharks in kind of a small pond, all kind of biting around one another and trying to stay out of each other's way. That was kind of the closest that I can think of to, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross from like a sales aspect. Very cool. I yeah. can see that. Yeah. Obviously, uh, this movie, this is the second one we've done by James Foley. And it's also, I believe the first one we've done based on anything by David Mamet. And, um, just wondering what else you guys have seen by Mamet and maybe if you see any uh, common themes with him in terms of uh, what he's tackling in Glengarry and other films. Or do you think this is sort of a standalone piece? Off the top of my head, I I guess the, <laughs> I mean, I guess the only other Mamet screenplay movie I've seen is uh, Hannibal. And man, that's as far from, from, Glenn, <laughs> from Glengarry Glenn Ross as humanly possible, you know. They are biting at each other in Glengarry Glen Ross, but they're not actually eating one another. Did they end up using his script for that? Because then they throw his out and use somebody else. It's credited on IMDb, but that's about as you know, yeah, that's credible as anything. Yeah. yeah. When it comes to this kind of insular world and this kind of patois that these guys have um, in the salesman arena. Uh, a film for me that really kind of got swept under the rug, and I, I'll bring this up again when we talk in a couple weeks here about uh, Lost Soul and talking about um, Val Kilmer. The film Spartan just really took me by surprise. I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed that film. And again, there was this kind of like strange language that they were speaking at times. You know, there's the, the language of Glengarry Glenn Ross is so specific. I mean, we talked about all the F bombs and the shits and all that kind of stuff, but we didn't talk about, you know, being on a sit and, you know, leads. I mean, if you don't know what is going on, you might not necessarily know what a lead is and these kind of things. And just all these like little terms that they have for different things in Glengarry Glen Ross. And it seems like some of that is in Spartan, but more in a, in a different arena, uh, not necessarily that same thing. But um, as far as other stuff that I've seen that is either based on, 
or actually written for the screen by Mamet. I mean, Wag the Dog. Wag the Dog is one of those movies where when I watched it, I was just like, this is the most obvious thing in the world that I've ever seen. But then as the years have gone on, you just see the tactics that they had in Wag the Dog being used in real life more and more. And it's just like, now it's more like this kind of, you know, clarion call of, hey, remember when they did that thing in this movie? Come on, you guys. Aren't you realizing how much you're being manipulated by these politicians? But not necessarily. You know, and Wag the Dog, of course, was based off of real political things that had happened, but it just kind of, you know, put this stake in the ground as to here, we're going to take this to the nth degree. Isn't this ridiculous? And now we've passed that. So it's, it's uh, kind of a strange thing for me. Uh, unfortunately, though, I haven't seen a lot of his other stuff. Like, I haven't seen American Buffalo. I haven't seen Homicide or, what is that, House of Cards. I mean, there were a lot of films of his that I want to check out. House unfortunately, I'm not. House of Games. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not a big Joe Mantegna fan sometimes, and he's worked uh, a lot with some of the, the earlier Mammoth stuff. He was actually in the play of Glengarry, if memory serves. So, um, But yeah, there's some other stuff that he's done that I've liked, like uh, Ronan I thought was pretty good. Um, I think I've seen Edmund, um, the one with um, William H. Macy. But, uh, yeah, then there's a lot of stuff that I haven't seen. But I think the one that stands out for me, and I think you might say this too, Rob, is The Spanish Prisoner. And that one is just this kind of unusual turn, especially in Steve Martin's career. And that's one I would definitely like to take a look at further. Hands down, Spanish Prisoner is one of the most underappreciated uh, films from Mammoth, and I think one of the most underappreciated films of the late 90s. Um, it is Steve Martin's first real, I think, dramatic turn. There may have been something before then. And it is just a tightly wound little watch that works so well. And everyone's really great in it. And that's one that I would love to do. And uh, I don't think Campbell Scott has been that great in something before or since. I mean, to me, it's just a, an amazing little film. Top of the food chain. I thought that he was amazing in that. But, you know, we need to talk about that one one of these days. I forgot that Mamet wrote the screenplay for The Untouchables. And that's one where you got that baseball speech with Robert De Niro. I mean, that is pure Mamet. And it's just fantastic. So, yeah, that's another one. Just a... a, a Talk about a great combination, having Mamet writing the screenplay and Brian De Palma in his prime directing this thing. Those two tastes just go like a Reese's Cup, man. They're amazing. Sounds good. Well, I'm hoping maybe in the next year or so, Spanish Prisoner, we got to put that one on the list. Because uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Steve, baby, give us a call. That's right. All right. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. You want me to go to Las Vegas at once? As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Tape recorder for special music. Get the hell out of LA for at least 48 hours. We're all set. If I could just get, get you John Hancock, you're on your way. Yeah. Listen, you're going to be real careful with this car, right? Oh, yeah, man. Let's give the boy a lift. We can't stop here. This is that country. Damn, I never rode in a convertible before! Get out. 
What's the score here? <laughs> Lucy paints portraits of Barbara Streisand. God bless. Hell, look what you're doing to your car. <laughs> Someone should stop that. Police, are you people crazy? Summit Entertainment and Universal Pictures present the story that defined a generation. Johnny Depp. Benicio Del Toro. Let's get down to brass tacks here, man. How much for the eight? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. A Terry Gilliam film. All right, now I've got to go. What's up, lunch? Radio, man, radio. You don't know. That's right. We're back next week talking about not one, not two, but three films based on the work of the now departed doctor of gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson. Join us as Rob and I take large amounts of mind-altering substances and drive right into the savage heart of the American dream as we talk about fear and loathing in Las Vegas, where the Buffalo Rome and the Rum Diary. Do not miss it. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest, co-host Chris Stashu. Stashu, thank you. Chris Stashu of the Culture Cast podcast. Chris, what have you been up to lately, sir? What can we expect to hear over at the Culture Cast? Uh, well, this uh, this week on Sunday, we're recording Sunday. It should be out next Monday. We're actually going to be talking about Freaked. Uh, and Bubba Hotep for our Monster Movie Month. Uh, we're going to have a lot of guests from Freaked. Um, Alex Winter, like most of the, all of the writing team, and a fair handful of the, the you know, the actors involved with the film. Uh, and, and I'm really, I'm really jazzed to have our, our, our guest co-host this weekend is uh, Derek Dillon, who is the creative manager at the soon-to-open Alamo Draft House up here in, uh, in Omaha. Uh, where I live. So he's going to get to come and we're going to get to nerd out about Freaked for probably an hour, two hours, and then talk about Bubba Hotep, which I know you didn't like, Mike, for like five minutes. So, um, and we're in the middle of Monster Movie Month over at Culture Shock. That's culture with a K. Uh, so if you're looking for a more disorganized, profanity-laden look at movies, which is guaranteed always on our culture cast, uh, make sure to check us out at cultureshocked.com. That's culture with a K. Other than that, you can follow me on Twitter at Heelstash. Sounds good. Thanks again for coming on, Chris, and thanks to everyone for listening. And remember, podcasts are for closers. Prove you're worthy of that also and worthy of that cup of coffee by leaving a review on iTunes. And leave us some stars. Let folks know also on Facebook, Twitter, whatever uh, other way that you would like to get the word out and close those leads you may have had. So... Just get it done. And now, Mike and Chris, let's head out in that new Cadillac I just got. Welcome with open arms, so wash away your sins and lay on holy palms. Employee of the month, don't guarantee a pension. He don't believe me, live the life of a salesman. Why's he gotta die? He's trying to live comfy. 2020 pessimist, I'm instead of Billy Mumphrey. My only downfall, I was way too hungry. Why not be greedy in lieu of starving? If only Willie Loman survived the economy, he could have left a fat nest egg for his family. 
living proof hard work doesn't pay off. I never took a day off, and I'm always getting laid off. Gotcha fight, not for lack of productivity. Things are tight for the company right now, fiscally. Don't take it personally, we love to keep you on the payroll. Financially, right now, for us, it's impossible. I take long showers and think for long hours. Staring at this microwave will give me God's powers. I work for Bruce Banner and Reed Richards. After Joseph Gamma Rays, my skin is green silver. The difference between wishes and prayers. I wish my brother James was here. Zombies pray on the scared and the weak. Kind of like Saturday to Saturday. Fit in a nine to five and work until you pass away. If you're hungry, come to us and we'll feed you. If you're lost, come here and we will guide you. If you need a home, come to us and we will house you. All it will cost you is a life savings donation to the congregation. Since I was young, I wanted to be a ninja. Mom still wants me to go to med school. Go figure, I didn't do either. I stole Kanye's seeds and dropped out before commencement. Put my failures on record. The art of living reckless, no caution. What's the fun of living life if you're not living lawless? Treat life like Mario 3 World to being chased by the sun. Never stop running till the level's done. When I die, don't let the government get my body. Just save what you can and give what's left to my mommy. She'll know what to do, the lavish funeral She'll bury me in Ghana And two next to my pop, where it's hotter than a sauna In fields of marijuana, warriors with katana Grace thrown in my honor Case to ride whatever may be is reality you Don't become a champion, you're out of this family If you're hungry, come here and we will feed you If you're lost, come to us and we will guide you if you need a home, come to us and we will house you. All it will cost you is a life-saving donation to the congregation. If you're hungry, come to us and we will feed you. If you're lost, come to us and we will guide you. If you need a home, come to us and we will house you. All it will cost you is a life-saving donation to the congregation. So be your tidings accordingly. Will you get out of here? Will you? I'm trying to run an office here. Now, will you go to lunch? Go to lunch. Will you go to lunch? If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.